All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the Buster Show podcast. Today, I'm super excited because a new friend, Joe Pompliano, is back on the show or on the show for the first time, but we're chatting again. Um, and thank you so much for being here, man. Yeah, man, I'm happy to uh, happy to be on. I'm, uh, thanks for having me. So right before we came on, we were just talking about, um, you know, Olympic sports and how many new basketball leagues there are. I was telling you a little bit about, you know, the crew league and and some of my involvement there. But uh, you've got Africa's basketball league starting. You've got, um, you know, things like the crew league three on three, you know, by Red Bull uh, in, in the Olympics. When you think about it, there's nothing necessarily proprietary about any given sport. Do you think that's something interesting that the average fan doesn't really think about? Like if every NBA player woke up when their contracts were done and said, hey, let's start our own league called the Players League. And they did it. They could. Is that something you ever think about? I think about this type of stuff all the time. Right. And I think it's uh, super interesting because you make a good point that basically there's no uh, kind of like IP ownership on the actual uh, game, right? On the game of basketball or whatever it might be. But really what it comes down to is just distribution, right? So it's whoever has the biggest audience and the NBA has obviously built that up over time. They have the best players, they have all the media deals and everything like that. But yeah, look, like if, if LeBron James woke up tomorrow and went and called 10 of the best players in the league and said, Hey, we should go start our own league. Uh, you know, I have networks willing to distribute it. They'll pay everything up front. Uh, we have the biggest social media audiences ever. Like it's obviously going to take time. It's not going to work out right away, but you, you get the point, right? Like you can, quickly see uh, things like that working. And I think that's what's cool about like the crew league and, uh, and, and, you know, even like overtime elites, a good example, right? Cause totally. they have, they have a massive audience on social. So they're immediately able to kind of go monetize that by creating leagues and paying players. And, uh, and if they get the right players, then, you know, hopefully that's, you know, builds up the audience over time and everything, but it's exactly why things like that work is because you guys have, uh, you know, I'm talking about the crew league and overtime there's built in distribution, right? There's an audience for it. And that's really the only, that's the major thing that differentiates it between the NBA and, and, and smaller leagues. Totally. And we had Dan Porter on the show a couple of weeks back and, um, and he said a lot of similar things. They're, they're just super excited as they should be. I mean, that, that's something totally new too, just taking a different age group. Um, but like you said, it, it's pretty intense when you think about how many more followers and how much more social attention LeBron gets than the NBA itself. Yeah. Like that was never true. You know, Michael Jordan had had a, obviously insane awareness, but he didn't have one click away awareness where yep. he could post on social media and the whole world knew. He had to put out press releases. He had to like speak through people um, or he had to go on TV and, and he didn't own the TV stations. They could have said no, or the NBA could have prevented him from going on TV and saying those things. I'm just saying, if I were looking, if I had the money and I was looking at buying NBA teams, there's more than just what most people think. Well, it's like, uh, it, it's funny. I was talking to a professional athlete um, the other day. And, and one of the things that we were talking about was like, if you had to purchase one, a team in any sports league in the world, right? So mm -hmm. NBA, uh, MLB, NFL, you could do any small leagues, right? Lacrosse, women's soccer, whatever it was, any league in the world that if you could go purchase a team, where would you purchase, right? And I think the most obvious things are probably like the NFL or the NBA, right? They just have such a long track record of consistent growth, like year over year for multiple decades. Uh, and one of the parts where he said was a big differentiator for him, and this guy played in the NFL, so it spoke volumes to me, was that he would have preferred an NBA team uh, because of that star power, right? So you have LeBron James who comes in the league and he's a superstar for 20 years, right? T almost two decades. And uh, there's numerous players like that, right? They're just the longevity of these guys and the star power that they have, it's global. It's a, it's a game that's played everywhere in the world, right? So it's just, it's much bigger on that stage. Um, and the NFL has that to some degree, right? Like you have the Patrick Mahomes and guys like that, but it's very, it's very uh, few guys that make it 20 years straight of kind of that total trajectory of like a Tom Brady, right? He's the perfect example because he's one guy that has done it. But in the NBA, it's much more common, right? So Giannis will be here and he'll be good for the next 10, 15 years. LeBron's been good forever. There's a bunch of examples you could go through. Um, but I just thought it was super interesting from like a big sport perspective. Even those athletes realize like the NBA has all these stars that are just like they can sell anything. They have the biggest audiences and all of that. So I think it's interesting too when you think about um, like – 
what this, where it goes from here, because that's one of the biggest advantages for the NBA, but it's also probably one of the biggest threats, right? If we move into like, an, you know, further down this digital age of, uh, of these players feeling more empowered and having these channels and these voices and everything like that, should LeBron James not get equity in a team, right? Like, I don't know, maybe, um, but well, to be fair, him, I'd love your take on this, right? So he moves to uh, the Heat. He comes back, wins the championship with Cleveland. We won't even go through uh, kind of what that meant to the city emotionally and to Dan Gilbert and all of the fans like that. But just from an economic perspective, locally, he was injecting like 50 to $100 million additional money into the economy on top of what they were doing previously. Just stupid right. money. Right? Right. And he's there for multiple years. It compounds. And then you have the team sales and the jersey. It's just merchandise is everything right um so a player like him changes everything because now you're making the playoffs like he leaves you're not making the playoffs so there's just i mean you could go all day on the differences it makes but what happens if these players start realizing that and uh, i mean they realize it to some degree right there's just no mechanism to do it it's so interesting right because again it's like at face value like if I were the Cleveland, if I were Dan Gilbert, you know, who owns the Cleveland Cavaliers still, I believe. um, And the NBA allows it. I'm offering LeBron max contract plus equity. But what that means is he can't play anywhere else while he's a professional. Now is LeBron willing to take that? I don't know. I don't know because one day he's going to be able to have a piece of any team he wants um, or the entire team which I think is what he really wants. He doesn't want to be a partner with Dan Gilbert, who has said some nasty things about him. I don't know if you remember when he was traded or when he left to go to Miami, Dan Gilbert put out like a whole memo just trashing him. And he still came back. And yeah, right. He he still came back and won that guy a title. So in that particular instance, I don't know. But um, the, the other, the other thing that I will say that, you know, does make it a little bit more complicated is because of the way that, uh, the league distributes jersey sales and ticket sales, how they try to uh, democratize it as much as they can. So they're like splits. So if you, if a Cavs jersey sells on, on through the NBA, the Cleveland Cavaliers don't get all the money. The yeah. Knicks get some of that money. The Lakers get some of that money. The you know Toronto Raptors get some of that money. Um, but locally speaking, Dude, it's so it's so huge getting guys like that. But from how much it actually impacts the team owner, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm curious what that number is. I don't, I don't know. Well, so uh, one one good example would probably be, and this is probably to the extreme. So two teams I always look at are uh, the Warriors and the Timberwolves, and I use them because they're the best examples more recently. The Timberwolves are the perfect example as to why a closed and a capped league like the NBA is beautiful for an owner because mm-hmm. they've been terrible, right? For two decades, you know, Glenn Taylor bought the team in late nineties, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, 20 plus years, they've made the playoffs a handful of times. They haven't won anything. They've just been terrible for year after year after year. He appreciated he, his, uh, when he sold the team now to Mark Lauren, A-Rod, it was like a 20% compounded annual growth rate for like two and a half decades. And they're so terrible. Crazy. They're just terrible. And they're in Minnesota. It's just, they were just by far and away, just a byproduct of the league being capped and then being included on the distribution of the media rights and everything else. Right. Just, just totally right. lucky that they weren't, if they had promotion relegation, like soccer in Europe, they'd be screwed. Right. They would have been kicked out of the league a long time ago. The revenues wouldn't be the same, et cetera. But the Warriors are a good example, I think, because of how much a guy like Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant and all these guys meant to that franchise. Uh, so the, they, I forget the exact purchase price, but they're, they grew more than any team in the league over the last 10 years when they were sold. Uh, Bob Myers and these guys bought them. It was similar to the NFL situation where Jerry Jones was laughed at for the amount he paid, right? It was just the most any team had been paid for. And it was the same thing in the NBA. And you look at it now, now they have a new arena, right? That they own. It's downtown San Francisco now. It's not in the Bay anymore in, in Oakland. So just much more expensive real estate. Uh, they won a bunch of titles. They're, they're just a premium team now. They're worth more than the Lakers, which I think would have been crazy to think about a decade ago. Just the LA Lakers being worth less than the, t- the team within their own state, right? So that's so crazy. Uh, it's crazy. It's tough because, right? Like the players got to want it and the structure's got to work out. Uh, there's a bunch of mechanisms, right? You can't really trade the player if that happens. So We'll see. I, I wouldn't uh, put it out of kind of uh, the realm of possibility, but I think it's probably much further down the road than people would estimate. Mm-hmm. It gives the player so much leverage too. Yeah. Where it's like, 
oh, you don't want this guy? Like, all right. Like, once things are contractual, it's in theory, LeBron could be like, I'm not playing until you trade for this guy. Yeah. Then what LeBron happens? example is good because uh, you're spot on. He wants to own a whole team, right? And he wants controlling interests and he wants all of that. So at some point, it's almost like, does that get in the way of it, right? If he owns 2% of the 1% or, you know, 50 basis points of the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers, like, what does that really mean for him long-term? I think he'd probably rather Nothing. own significant of a team. Uh, even if it's maybe in the short term, it's better financially. If he can own more of a team longer down the road and uh, and control everything from the GM, the coach, you know, all that type of stuff, I think that's probably what he'd prefer. Yeah, man. One of the best moves any former player has ever made, Michael Jordan, you know, buying the then Charlotte Bobcats. Yep. Yeah, it's been incredible for him. And I think that, uh, to be fair, I think that's what LeBron's gearing up for. So he got, he's in the deal with uh, Fenway Sports Group, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what that enables him to do is Fenway, not only did they convert his stake, so I forget the exact percentages, but he owned a piece of Liverpool, right? And he did that through a contract with Fenway Sports Group. Right. And he converted that over to full ownership of Fenway Sports Group. So he basically took a, lo- a lower percentage stake, but now he owns a piece of everything as opposed to just one of their assets. And that was important because they raised $750 million or whatever it was from, uh, from Redbird Capital. So Redbird bought 10% of the business. I think it was 750 million. They were valued at seven and a half billion. And that right. business includes the Red Sox, Liverpool. So now LeBron's a part owner of all of these, of all the assets that they have. Right. right. Do they own any other teams? No, those are the only two. They own like uh, they own a bunch of real estate around Fenway Park. They own uh, Roush Racing or whatever the the NASCAR team. So they own okay. they own a couple minor league teams, just right, small. Right, right, right. But the two major teams are them. But I think what he's doing uh, long term is he's gearing himself up because the difficult problem he's always going to face is that he's going to have to put up a billion dollars to own the majority share of an NBA team. And he's rich as hell, but like, that's just a shit ton of money. And he's not going to be able to do that, at least not for a long period of time, unless something else crazy happens. So I think what he's doing is he's partnering with them. They raised $750 million. They said that that money is eventually going to be used to buy up additional assets in the, in the sports ecosystem, right? Professional teams. And I think eventually I don't know if it's five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever. I think the plan is eventually going to be, he's going to have his majority ownership control, but he's not going to own the most of the team, right? So he's going to be able to own a significant portion, uh, but he's not going to have to put a billion dollars up, which is a win-win for him, for the owners, for Fenway, for everyone, right? And I think what he's doing is he's really just aligning himself with people that he knows are going to be players for the next two, three, four decades. So interesting. And he's LeBron, so everybody loves him. Yeah, it's really a great, it's really a great position to be in. Can you imagine being like nowadays, you know, everybody seems to have money. I mean, in these types of conversations. So the differentiator is how much are you loved? How much influence do you have? And what's your deal flow, right? I'm sure there are a few other things, your experience, like what you've done for companies in the past, your past success, like your name, reputation, all that stuff. But could you imagine being somebody like LeBron with that kind of deal flow? Oh, it's insane. He, he turns down 99 out of a hundred, even more, you know what I mean? Like he's just approached with so many things because he can be so helpful. Uh, and, and I'm sure he would, I don't want to speak for him obviously, but I'm sure one of the things that he would mention as being the most difficult part of it is just deciding on which things to do. Right. And it's like, um, the one example I always use with him is blaze pizza because he had to turn down. He, he, uh, he actually had like two or three years left on his McDonald's deal. Right. And Maverick Carter came to him and he's like, Hey man, look, we can get equity in this business. It's growing pretty quick. I think it's good. I like it. Uh, but you're basically going to have to, he had already been paid, I think. So he had to give back like $20 million or something like that. Oh. So imagine that right? like, out of your bank account, you're giving it back to McDonald's and you're like, no, I'm going to end this deal early to go and pay someone to get equity in their business. So it's just like, it's a bit right. Like to us and, and normal people, it sounds wild. But to him to be able to think, hey, look, I got plenty of money to do what I want. Like this is a generational play. And to his credit, it's worked out beautifully, right? Like those blaze pizzas are popping up everywhere you can imagine. And his equity stake is worth a lot more. Um, but then look, like it's just a, it's a total uh, kind of web for him because then he markets the product. He gets paid a marketing fee by blaze pizza. He owns part of the business. It's just, you know, guys like that, uh, once you build up past a certain level and you have that that audience and that star power and that influence, like you said, it's just, it, it comes down to like, which projects do you just want to get involved in? Right. And there's sort of like a graduation period for athletes and celebrities where you go from marketing to equity. 
and that's yep. that's just sort of the uh that's when you know you're you you've made it in so terms I, I, of financially yeah i was gonna say uh one of the things that i i typically mention uh, and sometimes it gets pushed back and sometimes people understand it but my general thesis is that back in the day like you said it, it was all marketing right it was just I'm Michael Jordan. I'm going to go sell shoes. I'm going to go do this Gatorade commercial, whatever. Right. So you, you go market the product and you use your influence and your uh, kind of personality and your awareness to go drive sales for that owner. Now it's turned into basically like it's a bigger deal if you get equity in a company. So uh, some of the companies that are doing it the best are Hyper Ice, Body Armor, right? Like all these companies, they do deals with you. They'll give you a small equity stake. It's seen as beneficial for the athlete because they still get some marketing money, but then they get kind of that equity stake in the business also. LeBron did it with Beats. It worked out really well for him. Mm. And now I think what we're going to transition into and what we've seen with the top athletes uh, like LeBron and some of these other guys is that they're going to start just partnering with entrepreneurs, right? And say, hey, look, I have plenty of capital. I have a massive audience. I have plenty of influence. Everything that I'm doing for these other brands, why don't I just own more of the business, right? Like we don't need money. We don't need, if you want to go start a $100 million company and you're going to raise money, LeBron doesn't need anyone to go raise money for him. Maybe you want some other people involved. Maybe you want to involve some other guys and you want to take less of the equity because of it. But at the end of the day, like why shouldn't he just partner with a great entrepreneur, someone that can build a business, he can provide the money and his marketing and influence drive sales, right? And there's a bunch of other things that obviously go into it. But I think that's probably like the next shift we'll see is like now it's really hot and popular to get equity in a company. And everyone says, ooh, he got equity and all that type of stuff. I think when people start to have these massive exits, like we've seen in uh like all like Conor McGregor, right? He's the perfect example. He started proper 12. He basically said, they came to him and they said, Hey, look, we're three or four of us are going to go start this liquor company. We're going to own a large chunk of this. Right. And we're going to have a plan that we're going to accelerate sales as quickly as we can. Uh, we'll get someone else to do all of the bottling, the manufacturing, all that type of stuff. And you'll just market it. And what happened was they scaled it up super quickly in five or six years. They already had, when they signed the original deal, they had uh, predetermined sales targets where they would sell pieces of the business, right? So if they hit these targets, they would sell out. So he knew basically like, if this goes really well, I already know how much I'm going to make. And, uh, and they hit those targets and he was the highest paid athlete in the world last year. It's crazy, right? So crazy. Speaking, For an MMA athlete. It's <laughs> yeah, insane. Speaking yeah. of, you know, well-paid fighters, I saw you tweet the other day or, or earlier that, you know, only three boxers made more than $20 million in the last calendar year. And um, one of those is uh, youngster Jake Paul. How do you, first off, how do you feel about that from your business side of things and then your personal side of things? And then secondly, uh, is this the future of sports? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. So just uh, for everyone who didn't see it, it was, it was basically Sportico did there. Uh, they do a very similar list of Forbes where they come out and they say, hey, this is how much athletes made last year, kind of on the court, on the field, whatever it is, versus endorsements. And there was only three professional boxers that made uh, $20 million or more. I think Canel Alvarez made 60 and Anthony Joshua and, uh, and Jake Paul made 20. So I was like, yeah, three boxers made it. Two of them were world champions. And then there was Jake Paul, right? <laughs> so uh, one, I got some backlash because people were like, he's not a real boxer, right? That whole, that whole uh, angry argument. And, Which is ridiculous because it's all just entertainment. You know, like, and that's what it is, right? And and we were talking about McGregor earlier. It's the same thing. McGregor's a world-class athlete and he's an incredible fighter. But at the end of the day, the reason why he was so successful was because of his ability to market, right? Yeah, and, I mean, the dude has lost fights. He's not Floyd Mayweather. But it's it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, he's A, a great fighter, but B, an all-time entertainer. And even when he loses, he's still an all-time entertainer because we enjoyed watching like the, sh the lead up, the fight, and then him be like the classy dude that he is. Yeah, he's must-see TV. And that's exactly yeah. what Jake Paul became, right? He's just like, whether you like him or hate him, you have an opinion, right? Most people at mm -hmm. least can say, hey, I, I wonder the other. Um, and, and you want to see what he does. So like the everything's calculated, I think, right? Like maybe there's some things that he doesn't think, hey, wasn't planning on doing. But at the end of the day, his one goal is just to drive attention and awareness to himself, uh, which is what it is, right? Like people hate on it. I don't hate on it. I think it is, you know, like the guy knows what he's doing. Uh, he's playing the cards he's dealt really well. So I, I don't have an, a, like a personal opinion one way or the other if I don't like him or I like him. I think it's fine. Um, but yeah, look, I think, I think we're on the same page as like whoever can do that the best is going to end up winning in sports. And I think that uh, people that are scared that boxing is going to trend that way need to realize 
um, that that's what people care about nowadays. It's all about how much attention you can grab from someone. And these fighters that historically have been the best in the world, right? And then it takes two, three, four, five, six years to make a fight. Um, like people just don't want to do that. They don't have the patience for that. They don't care. Like most of the top fighters, they're not even uh, marketable enough anymore. You know what I mean? Like uh, one example that I was thinking of the other day was uh, Tyson Fury's little brother. He, he, uh, he's like five and oh, six to know whatever. And I only, most people only know of him because, uh, Jake Paul was feuding back and forth with them. Right. He's like, uh, Tyson's little brother's like, Hey, we should box, whatever. He's like, you're not on my level. And most people probably think like, you're not on my level as in like, you probably knock me out since you're a real boxer. Um, but what, what the reality is, is the kid's five and oh, and his next fight is against a guy who's oh, and 12 or oh, and 14. Right. And that's what boxing does. And that's, I think a lot of the general frustration is like, you can just so easily pad your stats until you get to a level where it's like must see TV and people don't want that. And I think that's one of the reasons why UFC has caught on really well is because I, uh, I talked about this the other day on, on a Twitter spaces, but two of the things they did really well, in my opinion, were they allowed athletes to show their personality. Right. And uh, one of that was through the ultimate fighter, the TV show. So mm -hmm. most people don't know this. They actually uh, got turned down from basically every broadcast network you could imagine. Because if you think back in the day, MMA was seen as like barbaric. Everyone was like, no, uh, John McCain. Right. Like, Gladiator stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. John McCain was like, no way this is ever getting approved in States. This is human cockfighting. Like literally he called it that. And it, it, it eventually did. Right. And, and they showed the personalities. And I think people respected the fact that these guys are, you know, calling their wives saying, hey, look, right. I'm training. I'm trying to get us a six-figure contract from the UFC, whatever. And then uh, the other example of that is uh, Dana White in 2011, he he took, uh, when all the other leagues were saying, you can't use social media, we're going to find you. We don't want you using this stuff. Like it's just dangerous to use Twitter and everything like that. Dana White created a program for the UFC where he put away like 245 or $250,000 and he was paying out periodic uh, quarterly payments, bonuses to, uh, to fighters for who used Twitter the best. Right. And it was genius. It was genius because he was basically look like, we just need to get in front of people. We need people to understand our sport. We need to, people to understand these are real people. They're real fighters. Uh, and, and it's free marketing for us, right? So he was paying out like $5,000 and everyone was tweeting nonstop trying to gain followers to get the bonus because UFC fighters, they only get paid when they fight. And back then it was like, hey, maybe you're making 60, 100, 150K in a year. That $5,000 a quarter is pretty important, right? So I think stuff so like funny. that. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And, uh, and and we've seen more leagues kind of adopt that now. Like the PGA Tour just did uh, the player impact program where they're going to pay out like, you know, millions of dollars every year to the guys who do it the best. Nice. And I think it's just all in the similar nature of like these guys in these leagues uh, realize it's all a battle for attention, right? And I think that it's just kind of like who can, who can capture the most share in the shortest amount of period of time. Dude. It's so crazy. The UFC, I mean, that that's an incredible story. I didn't know that about the tweeting, by the way. That's yeah, it's uh, crazy. It's good, but it makes sense. Dana's got, you know, his his head on very, very straight. Um, mm -hmm. you know, going from what they were in, in you know, launching in the early nineties to being a ten billion dollar organization now. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Um but yeah, on on the Jake Paul front, you know, I, I think, you know, credit where credit is due across the board. Like I'm friends with Logan and I've spoken to Jake a few times. Um, yep. And every time I've spoken to him, really smart, like privately, really smart, calm, very level-headed, smart, yep. you know, like just a normal, really smart guy who understands how these businesses work and has been in it since he was 12 years old. Um, and that's something different that has never existed in professional sports where somebody, you know, can gain all that attention and, and be thrown into the mix and, and boxing is the perfect sport for it because it is and one-on-one -on -one sports are the perfect sport for it you know um because you don't have to deal with all those other dynamics just you it's you and you it's not like oh buster can shoot a three let's throw him on the knicks and everybody's gonna hate him because he's taking the da -da -da -da, and like i'm not good enough but uh and i know. think one of the compelling things off of that is that uh you're right the one-on-one -on -one aspect is awesome because especially in boxing it only takes one punch, right? So like everyone thinks that there's a chance that could happen. And Logan's a good example. Like he's fighting Floyd Mayweather and all it takes is one punch. He has a massive size advantage and whatever. 99, age, yeah. Yeah, age, you know, all that kind of stuff. But he like 99% of people may think he's not going to win or maybe able to fail. But in everyone's mind, there's at least 1% chance saying like, he's a massive dude compared to Floyd. Like he could just catch him one time luckily. And it was the same thing with Floyd, uh, with Floyd and uh, Conor McGregor, right? So it was like, 
you never know with these sports. And I think that aspect of boxing gives it a, a little more leverage than others probably. Floyd could be fighting a high schooler and we would all do the same thing. Yeah. It's not a, it's like, and, and Logan's awesome. And I think he's going to do great. I think he's going to surprise everybody, yeah. but that's just inherently the sport of boxing as opposed to something like tennis, yeah. where no matter who you put against Roger Federer, Roger Federer is not going to lose 1,000 out of 1,000 times against a celebrity or somebody who picked it up in the last five years, unless they are also a top pro. At all, yeah. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's not like you can have a YouTuber come out and beat Federer in the same way that, in theory, maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong, but I I think it's less likely. Yeah, we'll put it less likely. Um. So what, one other thing I wanted to get your thought on, I put this on, on LinkedIn and, and Twitter the other day, um, but I have a theory that sponsored entrepreneurs are going to be as big of a deal or near as big of a deal as sponsored athletes and influencers uh, are currently five to seven years from now. And I think that from conversations, you know, internally with, uh, with uh, companies who have products and you know, it's, it's funny, like I'll just use arbitrarily Red Bull as an example, right? Um, it's an energy drink, but it's marketed via like motorcycle guys doing triple backflips. The majority of consumers of that product are not doing triple backflips on a motorcycle 80 feet high over the Grand Canyon. They're just frankly not. They're, you know, startup founders and students and just people who are getting through everyday life. And I think that inherently, you know, a really successful startup founder is going to be a better way to market those products to their consumer because it's relatable. Um, And I think that that is going to happen across the board, especially because entrepreneurs now have followings. That was never true 20 years ago. You didn't, kids didn't grow up having their favorite Shark Tank person or their favorite Gary Vee or their favorite, you know, you know know what I'm saying? Their favorite podcaster who's also an entrepreneur. Um, And I think that the inevitable outcome of that is uh, because there aren't that many and followings are going up for entrepreneurs like yourself, myself, everybody across the board, right? Uh, That there, there's going to be a whole Nike division for entrepreneurs and they'll have their own sneakers too, because yeah. that's, that was the message all along that anybody can do it. And entrepreneurship is sort of a, at times a better example than sports because it really, you know, matter. It, you don't have to be six foot six on average NBA height, you know, just yeah. statistically speaking. Um, it's, it's a little bit more democratized. And I, I think I, that uh, it's interesting. Uh, I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Cause I actually, I saw your post on LinkedIn the other day and I, I was, I don't know if I liked it. I think I did, but I was hundred percent agreeing with it. Right. Because I think uh, there's a couple of things, but one historically, I think it leveraged athletes and, and brands leveraged athletes because they were the ones that had the following, right? Like they just, they were on TV, they had all these things. And now you're completely right. Entrepreneurs have it. Right. So if you look at someone like Mark Cuban or Chamath from social capital and VCs and, and just business owners, right. Uh, not only do they have the following, but they're actively trying to build followings. So I know 10, 15, 20 founders on Twitter who are actively trying to grow an audience because it's just beneficial for everything you do, right? Like distribution for your product, awareness, whatever it is, it's helpful to have an audience online. And I think that that's a natural uh, flow of that is to work with brands. And it's funny because I actually, when I talk to brands uh, to kind of to sponsor the newsletter and I, I usually do package deals, right? So um, maybe one entrepreneur will do who has a newsletter will just do newsletter ads. And the way I always talk to brands is like, we should do newsletter ads. We should do uh, tweets on Twitter. We can do an interview. Um, you can do a guest post. Like you just do a bunch of different things. And I think that what that brings is it's almost like an, it's an endorsement deal for an athlete. And I actually had a brand mention it like that. They're like, yeah, this is kind of like an endorsement deal. Like you're going to, like, I talk about them on a podcast, right? If, mm-hmm. if something comes up and it's, uh, you know, someone's talking about fractional share trading, I'm like, oh yeah, I work with collectible. We do this thing. Right. Right. And, uh, it becomes like this. Did it. Exactly. <laughs> they did you know? so good. But you know what I mean? Like it becomes this flow where anywhere I go and someone brings up something, it's like an endorsement deal because 
you're, you're talking about their product. Uh, you know, people are listening, you know, people are reading what you're writing and all that type of stuff. So it's like a cycle where you're just hitting them with multiple touch points, right? They see something, right. in the news, they see it on Twitter. They hear you talk about it on a podcast. Next thing you know, three times they're going to buy the product and it's and, just different from, and, uh, totally. And inherently entrepreneurs are more attracted to equity, you know, yeah. because normally they don't need the money or they're not going to spend the money on a thing. <laughs> um, you know, that, that a lot of those deals are going to be structured as so. So it's going to be the new age version of venture capital where it's attention capital. And it's done by people whom you want to have equity in it, not just because they're dunking on everybody, but because of the relationships that they've built over 40 years, as opposed to an athlete whom you're betting on them not getting injured or not being as good or not making it because the average NFL career is three years, NBA is like five or six. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, the average entrepreneurial career is, you know, 75 that's years. I was going to say that's the that's a good point. The only real risk is is uh, is them doing something stupid, right? Like Social canceling, yeah. That's really the only uh, big risk. So if you're comfortable with them as a person, it's like, you know, kind of a no brainer. Such a long term relationship, as opposed to you know a lot of these athlete deals who they're like, dude, just think about the draft class. Like, look look at a company like Panini, right? They make basketball cards. And every year they sign every single kid in the draft class. 95% of those cards and those deals. Yep. Worthless. It's just crazy. It's really crazy. Whereas like on the entrepreneurial side, it's, it's, al- it's almost a guaranteed success. Yeah. It, depending on what stage you're doing it for sure. Right. Like if you're going to someone who's already experienced and has a track record. If you're going and- to Chamath, it's a win. 100%. But it's not I'm as sure much. Not- if like you're going to like an NBA all-star, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, I'm curious how those guys would price it. Right. Like how does Shamath think about that? I'd be curious. Like, is it uh, like compared to an athlete, I would assume uh, it would be a higher fee, right? Like just depending on kind of the money wise and what's necessary. Um, But I don't know. That'd be interesting. Well, I think the difference is that somebody like Shamath wouldn't, need money so the company wouldn't have to shell out money so it would be equivalent in equity that's what i mean right so he's gonna ask for much more yeah let's say an athlete wants 250k for a commercial to be in a commercial right um but chamath is like oh oh, i'll endorse it in every conversation and room that i'm in that's applicable and i'll tweet about a couple times oh i think that's worth probably 500 to a million in equity and it makes sense for them because they have it and that puts them in a position that they wouldn't be. And it helps develop the business in a way that the athlete, unless there's somebody like LeBron, Jordan, you know, those types of people of the world who, who have both, but those are one in a literal billion or one yeah. in three billion, if there are two out of 7 billion people. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's just an interesting direction that I think things are going to, are going to go in at, at, at all stages because why why spend the like an athlete helps build like a product and consumer base whereas the entrepreneur if the entrepreneur does both strategically professionally has experience relationships i'm trying to think there's got to be someone who has like a shoe deal or something like that right like, well gary is a shoe deal case was uh, yeah, gary. yeah gary's put out like six shoes and they've sold out every time so Gary's the perfect example then, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if he has equity in Quesos. There's something more going on there than just sneakers. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, he, he's been super successful there. And I, I think if Mark Cuban dropped a sneaker, I'd buy it. Oh, a bunch of people would buy it, right? Steve Jobs, right? If when when he was alive, if he dropped something, people would buy it, right? It's just Elon Musk. Dude, imagine Elon's already done flamethrowers and tequila. Forget about something that's actually useful and has utility. (laughs) He's never dropped anything with utility. (laughs) Except for the cars. (laughs) Yeah. So true, though, but so funny because anything he does sells out, right? He drops like underwear. Didn't he drop like underwear? I don't know. I remember the tequila and the flamethrower. Uh, and, and I know that they both sold that. He does like one he a year. Did, right? He did booty shorts. He did booty oh, that's, shorts. Yeah, and yeah. They sold out immediately. Yeah. Th- there is some utility there, but not not that much. Not, not enough. That much. Yeah. Not enough. That's for sure. Um, so 
what, what do you think? Do you think that leagues like the NFL, um, like in, individually, I know the Sacramento Kings came out and said that they would pay athletes in, in uh, Bitcoin if they wanted to be. Um, do you think that's something that will ever receive mass adoption? Or do you think that the leagues sort of want to protect their athletes? Because it would like in December, everybody was like, there, there was, it was only up. Yeah. Now, Bitcoin's at 62 goes to 35. Imagine if you are the NBA and a top athlete wants to be paid 10 million and that 10 million turns into 4 million. After taxes, it's 2 million. Yeah. And like all of a sudden, you look bad. Do you think that that will prevent leagues from, you know, full in adoption on that sort of thing i was gonna say even if it goes the other way they're probably pissed right that right that they didn't have the upside but um i think what the leagues are doing right now is is uh super conservative and and the right move for right now which is uh russell coon right he plays for the panthers he makes 13 million dollars a year he came out i believe it was in november or december and he said i'm going to take 50 percent of it going forward in uh bitcoin specifically. So he took six and a half million dollars and he said, you know, every paycheck I'm going to automatically transfer half. And he uses payment service called Strike. And what it does is basically it's direct deposit for cryptocurrency. So the Panthers pay Strike right here in the middle from here to here. And then Strike converts it to cold storage and puts it and gives it to Okun before he even sees it. Right. So it's it's just like your bank account. Um, but the, the issue is that CBA is right now for the NFL, the NBA, uh, and the MLB all say that you can only basically pay through direct deposit or physical check. So you have to go and make an amendment to be able to uh, do anything else. And a lot of these leagues, one, like you said, just don't want to be involved. Um, right. But I think, I think what we're seeing, and I, I've written about this in the past, it's really just, um, I think we're going to see, we're definitely going to see more players do it. I know that there's players working on doing it, right? So there's going to be more players that come out and say, uh, I want to do 50%, hundred percent, Sean Culkin, uh, he was on the chiefs and he wanted hundred percent, right? So there's going to be more players. I think there's going to be some big names doing it. Um, but in reality, I think it's actually the other side that we're going to see a lot more innovation. It's going to be sponsorships, uh, the, the Miami Heat, they got like $135 million from FTX to rename the arena rights. And they couldn't sell them for two years. American Airlines ran out like a year or two years ago, right? And it's That's still so crazy. Couldn't sell it. And uh, so the city had the rights. They went out and sold it and got a cut of it or whatever. But FTX paid $135 million. So massive amounts of money. And uh, my whole thing is like, if they're paying $135 million, they're 100% going to want to use their products within the arena, right? Like, why shouldn't you be able to use uh, their products and, and, and transact in Bitcoin for stadium concessions or merchandise or whatever? The Mavericks accept Bitcoin for sales. The Athletics- And Dogecoin. Sales. Yeah, and Dogecoin. I, I was going to leave that one out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like the-, the, I, the I congratulated Mark on his foresight. I emailed him. I was like, I was like, I was like by the way, your foresight on Dogecoin- Remarkable. <laughs> so what's it, what's his deal? He says he's not going to sell any, right? He's he's going to keep it in whatever. It's I don't like, know. I don't know. But um, he's up so much. I mean, the Mavericks. I I don't know the breakdown or any of that. Like, just yeah. Funny. They. I mean, he, he's been accepting it for months, so he's uh, he's certainly done well from a kind of a purely financial perspective. But um, yeah, I, like just just to that point is like I just think we're going to see a bunch of teams innovate with it and try a bunch of different things. Uh, some will work out. Some won't. Like. FTX being the naming rights partner for the Miami Heat, it wouldn't be the first time that a naming rights partner kind of business failed or did something like that. And, and by no means am I saying that's going to happen. Um, but I just mean some of these things will work out. Like the uh, the Oakland Athletics, they were selling six-person suites to their stadium for $60,000. And they came out and said, uh, we'll accept one Bitcoin for it. And Bitcoin was at like 58 at the time, right? So uh, more than anything, it was more just a marketing play, I think, of just kind of like, hey, you know, kind of get our name in the press that we have suites available. This is what you can do. It was suites for a year, right? Yeah. 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 So suites, full season suites, six person, you got uh, $60,000 or, or Bitcoin, which was at 58. But if they would have transacted in Bitcoin and held it, they'd be down significantly right now, right? Or if it would have went the other way, they'd be up significantly. So I probably uh, am led to believe or assume that they were just going to kind of transact it and, and uh, you know, trade it for fiat and USD immediately. Right. But who knows? Um, but Right. Like, I think those are just all examples of, uh, of teams getting creative, like the Giants signed with Grayscale, right? They signed a sponsorship. So I think that's kind of more of the interesting part for me. Um, athletes will continue to try to uh, kind of be at the forefront, but at the end of the day, they can just take their salary and buy Bitcoin. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of just like a different angle of it. Right. Yeah. That, that um, ability, because it's so funny. I was, I was thinking the other day, I was like, 
I, I texted uh, my friend. I was like, I wonder if Uber does any sponsorships because I'm really spending a lot of money on Ubers. Nope. And then I was like, or I could just get a sponsorship with anybody else and spend it on Uber. <laughs> it's like there's no there's no difference money yeah, uber's like we'll give you credits or and it's like it probably like i mean i'm just speaking for them but right. like discounted rate when in reality you're like wait i could just go get a different sponsor who'll pay me more and then i'll just use that money on uber right so it's kind of right the same. right but internally like emotionally you want to feel like you're getting something so like i want to feel like i'm spending nothing but in reality i'm spending more and that's yeah. no fun um but yeah man this whole this whole world it's so it's changing so fast i mean i didn't have any crypto conversations a year ago and now i can't go three hours without a text and you know it's crazy it's crazy i think it's good though you know what i mean it's like whether you believe it or not um it's innovation right and it's it's tech innovation i think that's awesome uh and, and really if you are a believer in crypto in general uh, whether it's a Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Ethereum, whatever it is, um, I think that we've now transitioned to a space where it's kind of like, uh, it, it, it's not anymore, it's like crypto versus something else. It's like crypto internally, right? And it's almost like people are arguing about different things within crypto. So I think that that's been a huge <laughs> shift over the last year. And it's crazy right. to think about, right? Like just a year, even a year, two years ago, like there was people all over television screaming about a bubble, all this stuff. And, and we'll see where price goes. Um, but I just think that there's been a shift in the perception of kind of digital money online, right? Yeah, man. And I think the big lesson that I've learned from all this is that, you know, everything isn't real until it is. Yeah. Like true with Bitcoin in 2014, 17, whatever, right? True with Dogecoin in January, not as true now. You know, you can give utility to anything. So to call something, you know, bogus indefinitely looking forwards is something that you can't do as a human in 2021. You just got to wait and see. You can say, I don't believe in it right now. Yeah. But you never know. You never know when that. Elon's just going to tweet something out and it's just going to go to the moon. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And uh, it's funny because like just the, the most the, the craziest example of it is probably I saw someone. Um, it was I think it was it was either an individual or a media company or something was was tweeting about Bitcoin being a scam. And people were uh, pulling out screenshots of literally them in like 19, whatever, saying uh, the Internet's a fad, it's going away and all this shit. Right. And it's like that's an extreme example because the Internet turned into something that's like one of the greatest inventions. That, of all. I hope that response ratio, the original tweet. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll have to find an incentive to you because it, it's good. But in reality, I'm not saying that to dunk on someone. I'm saying that because it proves your point. Right. Where it's like. <laughs> You can't you can't just dismiss ideas, right? You have to try to give them time and, and optionality because you never know what's going to happen, right? Like if someone, uh, it's almost like Elon is a good example because he can just bully something through, right? Like Dogecoin was literally a joke. It was a joke, literally right? made as a joke. Yeah, and uh, and it's gotten to the point where like Elon is literally like almost trying to force it to become a thing, um, and 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 it's to his credit or downfall or whatever, uh, it's it's worked, right? So. When, when individuals have that much power, anything can happen. Individuals have more power than ever. I'm curious your thoughts on NFTs. I love NFTs, but, See? you know, I, I think that, you know, anytime people get involved, in, I know this from the sports card world, anytime that people get involved in something before doing a year of research, you're going to get what happened in NFTs, right? Like sports cards, they, the, they've been around forever, 100 plus year history in the last 20, 24 months, everybody, or last 12 months, everybody starts buying sports cards. Uh, they, they, they don't do any research on what a population is. So it's quantity, you know, everything is supply and demand in the world, sports cards in particular, since it's such limited quantity like art and collectibles. Um, so everybody gets in, they don't do any research. They try to flip. They don't understand that because something is cheap, you know, you got to understand who else is at the cap table with you and that they don't have the hands to be able to hold that stuff long-term. You know, the market cap on a one-of-one one Luka Doncic rookie is very different from a base Luka Doncic rookie. Um, and that base Luka Doncic rookie is super liquid because it gets traded 5,000 times a day because there were millions of them printed, tens of thousands of them graded. One-of-one, one, you're much safer owning. The top 1% to 5% of if any industry holds better than the bottom 95%. Um, 
So I think a lot of those things that people just didn't know heading in, and a lot of young people, um, and a lot of people who just are quite frankly headline readers and had card nostalgia from growing up as, as a kid and you know that, that sort of thing created that. But in, in NFTs in particular, uh, I, I think a lot of similar things happened. People just were, they felt like they missed crypto because they didn't do what the famous tweets did, which were one in a billion that most of them didn't even hold, um, where they paid for their coffee or they got they got $4 of Bitcoin at the very beginning and now they're millionaires. So people like are pissed that that's not them and they see yeah. something new and they're just like, oh, grab it, you try to grab it, do everything they can. Um, and then they don't you know, have experience in collectibles, which is what NFTs are at the end of the day, collectibles and art, uh, it's not crypto. And, you know, they just make uninformed decisions with no research because it's all so new and just shots in the dark. And 99.99% of those NFT shots in the dark have failed miserably, like really bad. But there are good ones. There are good ones. I think, you know, like I'm an advisor for a company called Eternity. We do celebrity NFTs with Tony Hawk, Pele, Muhammad Ali through his foundation, like, you know, really big um, celebrities. Uh, and, and I'm on there to help them understand, you know, supply and demand and, and quality and, and quantity, all, all those sorts of things um, and how to make it super collectible. But the CryptoPunks are another great example. I think what Gary did was super cool too with VFriends. Um, but at the end of the day, investing in an NFT is very risky if you haven't done your research, but it's also, it's investing in, in two or three things. A, uh, you're betting on the jockey, not the horse, the person behind it, because as they grow, you know, it's like buying their rookie card. Um, but you're also betting on their understanding of collectability principles. Mm -hmm. If they don't understand that once you do a first set, that's the first set forever. And then you have to continue to promote that original set and allow people the framework to sell it on secondary markets in organic and authentic ways and allow people to buy via credit card and all these different things. Um, it, it's going to fail. Um, so people are just reckless, man. I think that's true across the board though. Like people buying Bitcoin at 62 and then selling when it goes down 10%. It's like, you deserve to lose yeah. <laughs> at yeah, the end I, of the day. Trust me, uh, I get more um, DMs and requests and shit like that about like, just like questions about, hey, should I do this? Should I do that? And my, my uh, most of them I try to avoid because it's like, I don't want to be, you know, part of this uh, problem, whether it goes well or whether it goes terribly wrong. Uh, but my one advice always is just like, don't bet anything you aren't willing to lose. You know what I mean? It's just like, and if you're going to be buying crypto and Bitcoin and all these other things, one, have a super, super, super long time horizon because in any market, that's the biggest key to success. It's just like not caring about whether you need it today, tomorrow, or a week from now, and just being able to look so far down the line where it's like, hey, look, I really believe in this technology and that technology will continue to accelerate over time. And like, yeah, it kind of makes sense that we might have digital money eventually. And like, it doesn't really make sense that we have such high inflation and our government can just print money and stuff like that, right? So if you believe in those like very like just core small beliefs and you have a super long time horizon and you're investing money that you don't, uh, you don't need tomorrow or you're not scared to lose, then it makes a lot more sense. But you're right. Like people are, they're investing uh, stimulus checks, right? And they're investing money that they need and uh, they're looking to flip things and make a quick profit. And and I think that's uh, that's not only why we saw uh, kind of a slowdown in cards, but NFTs, Top Shot, all that stuff, right? It's just eventually that gets filtered yeah. out. You know, and at the end of the day, when you're trying to day trade, it's like, you really think you're going to do a better job than the companies that have billions of dollars behind them who can literally move a market with a click and yep who have been doing it for 20 years have 400 full-time analysts like you think you're going to beat them okay okay cool like, but, Let me... but i'm a bit of blackjack <laughs> right i should be listening to you then yeah you know um, why don't you work for them <laughs> right exactly so that that that's part of it man but um you know it's it's going to be really interesting to see how it how it all continues to change and develop but my, my big thing about you know and this is true with cards and this is the last thing i'll say yeah. um is i'll never tell somebody to buy or not buy something not because i don't believe in it or i don't want credit for it or anything like that i don't really but um everybody enjoys being right and helping other people yeah the, re the reason i can't tell anybody is because if i'm gonna tell you 
if I am to tell you, I have to be there at the finish line with you. If I'm yeah. pushing you into the pool, I have to jump in with you. If I'm yeah. telling you to start the 100 meter race, I have to be there at the end cheering you on and telling right. you when to sell. And if I'm not going to be there at the end for you and with you, I have no right to push you into that race. Yeah. And that's why I don't tell anybody anything. That's always my, uh, my first question is whenever someone brings something up to me, well, how much do you own? <laughs> right. Like, how, right. Do, you own any? do you have any, or is your, you have skin in the game and stuff like that? Right. Cause it's important, right? Like you don't want, um, one, I just think it's the, the advice game is kind of a lose, lose to some degree because, <laughs> it is. because even, even, you win, even if you're right, lose. they would need yeah. more from you then it's like a vicious dopamine cycle. And, uh, it, it, uh, it, it doesn't feel good to lose someone else money. Right. So it's like, it's worse. It, yeah. It's not even, uh, it, it's not fun even when they win then, because it's just like, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with this, but I think, uh, just generally, I, I'm more curious what will happen as we, uh, as people return to work. Right. I think most of the States are opening up now, depending where we are NFL season. They said that they think every stadium will be open. So you got to imagine if CDC said you can go inside now with them, right. Just all the things combining, uh, we should be, pretty open here soon uh, across most states. And it's like, what does this do uh, to kind of everything digitally, right? So over the last year, everything's gone crazy on the internet. Crypto, people have been on social while getting followers. Everyone's doing shit all day long, right? Like Pat McAfee's show on YouTube is a great example. His followers went up way up. He's seeing way more, uh, you know, people tuning in every day, all that kind of stuff, right? So just even whether it's big or smaller and in between, like on those levels, how does that all trend when we return to work, right? And and it'll be certainly interesting to see. And I don't think anyone has the perfect answer, but it's something uh, that I think people will be watching really closely. It's going to be so interesting. Well, Joe, thank you so much for doing this, man. I'm going to link all your socials down below um, for anybody who's watching this. And um, yeah, dude, we got to do this more often. This is really great. Like this could have been a phone call, which is how the best podcasts are. Yeah, I love it, man. I'm happy to do it whenever you want. I feel like we could have talked for another hour so. Probably, probably. <laughs> you let me know when and I'm, I'm happy to do it. Thank you well, for having me. Thank you so much again. All right, everybody. See you next time. Peace.